Welcome to this episode of Steeped in Stories. I'm here today with my friend, Jenny Andrus. Jenny and I have known each other for quite a few years. Our kids have gone to school together for, gosh, probably nine, ten years. I think so, yeah. Um, but a couple of years ago, Jenny had something um, unique happen to her and her family. And just the other day, she was taking a lift, and the lift driver picked her up at her house and said to her, oh, I want to tell you the story about this woman. And Jenny said she realized that he was telling her the story about herself. That has to be yeah. an amazing or incredible. It was so or, weird. Yeah. It was so surreal. A few of my friends have responded to it like angry, like it wasn't his story to tell. But he wasn't, he wasn't trying to... He was just trying to make small talk. So what happened is I got in the car and we were pulling out of the street and it's a street with only four houses on it. And he said, oh yeah, I used to hang out with a friend of mine who lived on this corner in this corner house. And I said, um, you know, cool, like who was it? I've been here for a long time, so maybe I know them. And he said, yeah, and also this woman on the street one time, she got shot and I think she got killed. And it took me about two beats to realize he was talking about me. <laughs> I said, I said, oh, that was me. And he said, no, I'm pretty sure she got killed. And I said, no, I'm pretty sure it's me. <laughs> I'm sitting right here. I didn't get killed. And he's like, wow. So then he started telling me some more details of my own story. So, you know, what? It, and then he started asking. Then he, he moved into sort of asking mode um, what happened to the perpetrator. So the, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the story so it will make his, his follow-up questions will make sense. Okay. They, they won't make sense if you don't know the story. Yeah. Tell us the story. Uh, and it's sort of a long story. So I don't, I'm not sure where I'm going to start. I'm, I can't possibly start at the beginning, mm -hmm. but I'm going to start, um, about two thirds the way through another story. So when I was 29, maybe I met a person and we started falling in love, like happens when you meet a person. And he was great. We hit it off. We had lots of chemistry. We had lots in common. He seemed like he was going to be very supportive um, of my career. So I am a career-oriented person, and I was in the middle of a master's degree, and I was on my way to a PhD, and I was not going to make one more decision in my life based on what a man wanted me to do. <laughs> so, so I thought. <laughs> Famous last words. So he seemed on board for that. He liked the fact that I was driven, and he liked the fact that I was going places. And he he was a little bit of a hanger-on. So he liked that I was going to, that he was going to have an easier life because I was going to pull the weight of the economic, the economic weight, and the decisions where we were going to live. He liked all that stuff. So um, things went along really well for a number of years. I mean, you know, it was a relationship, so we had ups and downs, but it was sure. extreme ups and downs. And then I had our first baby, um, and he got weird. He got like controlling of me, not the baby. It was, it. I, I had read a study, um, maybe just before I had her, where it said that relationships get more, uh, people get more dissatisfied with their relationship every child they have, so they get happier with their family relationship but more dissatisfied with their personal relationships. So I just read the study and I was thinking maybe this is what's happening. Maybe he's now seeing that I have, my attention is split. And so he was frustrated that all my attention wasn't on him. 
happened every time I had a baby. And the biggest time that it happened was when I had a baby after we'd moved back to, to Salt Lake City, which is where we live now, where I live now. And um, when we moved to Salt Lake, he was super anxious that I had had. I had lived in Salt Lake before and I'd been married before and I'd had other lovers before. And he got super jealous, mm -hmm. super jealous. We'd be driving down the street and he'd say, did you have sex in that house? Did you fuck over there? Did you? He was just like insanely. And this wow. was this was a person who, again, like has we started out where he was supportive of my relationship and my autonomy, but over time, he had become less and less supportive and less and less interested in me being an individual person. And you had never really seen that before. In it just happened so slowly. Okay. It just happened so slowly, and then I mean, I, people ask me, were there any red flags? My my relationship ended in a barrage of bullets. Um, and people ask, were, were there any red flags? And I say there were no red flags, there were yellow flags. But only if you look back from the perspective of knowing how it ended. If you look back from a, a general perspective, maybe it was a mildly dysfunctional relationship. Okay. Maybe there were issues with how we communicated, you know. But anybody in 19, in 2004 would have said, I mean, the people I knew in 2004 when, when, when I was shot were like, but but we know him. This is weird. I was mm. like, yeah. So in the, in the last five years of our marriage, since I had our youngest daughter, um, things got bad fast. And I was hiding all of that from my friends and family, all of it. Mm. You know, he was counting the minutes between. He had timed the minutes it would take me to get from work to home. And if I wasn't home on time, I was in trouble. I got yelled at for hours and hours and hours a day, hours. My kid's biggest trigger, PTSD trigger, is yelling. Current, luckily, my current partner doesn't yell. We don't yell in my house at all. And so um, that is sort of calmed for all of us. Okay. But I would get yelled at 3 o'clock in the morning. I would get woken up to get yelled at. I would get yelled at if the meal included chicken instead of steak because it's supposed to always include steak because he's a man. How can a man subsist on chicken? Huh. Uh, or, you know, it was just the, the bizarre things. And I've, I've, my own research field is on domestic violence. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Utah, and I've talked to lots of women in my research who are like the same, like the things he screamed at me for were insane, and also it is, it's debilitating to get yelled at like that, to get belittled, to get controlled, um, to be coerced into having sex so that you can sleep. You know, somebody asks you for, for sex and we all know, Every, everybody knows that sometimes you're too tired, you right. had too long a day, you're just not in the mood, the chemicals are not. Right. So, you know, you gently say, I love you, but no thank you. Not an option. Not an wow. option. No, I remember getting cajoled once for eight hours straight. I'd, I'd finally fall asleep and he'd wake me up again. Finally fall asleep and he'd wake me up again. It's, tor it's, it's literally a, for a form of torture. So, you know, sleep, sleep deprivation was big until he fell asleep. So he'd fall asleep around 3 and then he'd sleep until 3 in the afternoon because of his work, but I'd have to get up and take care of kids and take care of And go to work. And if and the kids woke him up, then there was health pay. And wow. So it was just all, all of that, that part of my relationship, my abusive relationship, was not physically abusive, but it was so devastatingly emotionally abusive. I, every aspect of my being was controlled by making him, making sure he wouldn't yell at us making sure that he wouldn't rape me that night, making sure that he wouldn't, he hated one of my kids, our kids, 
making sure he wouldn't do something mean. So it's just sort of managing his emotions. But his emotions were so high that it wasn't... I, I think that lots of people feel like they manage the emotions of their partners. <laughs> but this is managing the dangerous emotions of their partners. Do I know? Am I positive that this time he won't hit me? Am I positive that this time... He won't throw all my stuff in the front yard. You know, like yeah. all of that stuff was on the horizon. And the threats, the threats to my body, the threats to my kids, the threats. So it was, it was miserable. It was fully miserable. And that's what I think people... The last five years the last of five years. years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And people often, when they think about domestic violence, they think about fists and black eyes. Right. But a huge part of domestic violence is the emotional control, the coercion, the demeaning, belittling behavior, the making the making the abused party do all of this emotional labor, somersaults, backflips to just keep him in check. Okay, so what was the final straw for you? The final straw, uh, well that the summer that I left, two things happened. One, I fell in love with somebody else, okay. and that was like opening a door. I, I wouldn't have left without that relationship. Um, and then the event that made me leave the moment I left is he told me that he hated my middle daughter so severely and that she was such a piece of shit that he was going to start beating her in order to make sure she was a better girl. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, done. Oh, no, kidding. <laughs> I can take this abuse. I mean, the reason I'm taking this abuse is to try to keep my family together, to try to make sure that my kids don't get hurt, to, that they have a dad in their life. Right? All of the narratives that we have in the U.S. about complete whole families, right. um, I was managing as well as managing his temper. But when he said he was going to hurt my kid, that was, that was just there's just no, no, I, no there's just no way. As a mother, I, I know exactly what that is. No way. No. Yeah. And I'd watched him once, so I got home from. He got home from work once, and my middle daughter, she was three. Three-year-olds are a handful. And I had a two-month-old baby, and I was in tears. I couldn't get the three-year-old to go to sleep, and I couldn't get her to calm down, and I couldn't. So I went to him and said, can you please put her to sleep so that I can deal with the baby and so that I can go to sleep myself? And he, and he just snapped and raged in the room and I had to run to get in front of her because to get in front of him to get between the two of them because he was gonna hurt her oh my gosh and all I asked was that he deal with her for five minutes while she fall asleep you know it's, she's just three years old her, right she's three years old yeah. she just had a new baby her life was in uproar yeah um or there was a she had a new sister a new baby in the house so she just needed a, a little like daddy attention which he just refused to give. He only, and that was that was just before he told me he was gonna start beating her. I was like, start beating her. Like you've been abusing her, and she's she's had the roughest time in all of our recovery actually, because she wasn't just a secondary victim; she was a primary victim. Mm -hmm. But um, so I told him. So I'm laying in bed one night, uh, and staring at the ceiling, and he wakes up and he goes, "What are you thinking about?" And I was like, "Nothing." And he goes, "You're gonna leave me." I was like, no, I'm not. I believe you. I can't. Like, I'm just thinking, I can't do this tonight in the middle of the night. My kids aren't safe. I have. Yeah. This is not the way I'd plan to leave. And he just could read my mind sometimes. That's how it felt. That's how other abuse victims have talked to because that you're put into this position where you're managing their emotions so closely, so carefully, and they're watching your every move that it starts to feel like they can read your mind. Wow. Um, 
So I'm like, this, he can read my mind. <laughs> so he can't read my mind. Uh, I know logically. Anyway, he storms out of the room and I go after him, you know, this is going to be fine, everything's fine. And he's like, is there somebody else? Well, of course there was somebody else. And he can read my mind. And I'm, I'm in like vulnerable mode for some reason. Like usually I have all these protections up with him, but um, he's like, oh my God, you're cheating on me too? I was like, and he's like, who's it with? <gasps> and he says her name. And I was like, oh no. Like I could just feel my world falling down around me. Like what am I gonna do? How am I gonna keep everybody safe tonight? This is like two o'clock in the morning. Oh so he then, he rushes downstairs and I know immediately what he's doing. He has guns hidden in my house. Because I can read his mind at that point too. So I run to the stairs and I start screaming and he comes upstairs with a shotgun and, and a handgun and another two, two cases of guns. And he's like, I'm gonna kill myself. If I can't have you, I'm gonna kill myself. And I was like, that's bad for my kids. Please don't do that. I remember thinking, I don't actually care, but it's bad for my kids, yeah. so don't do it. And um, he rushes to the door, and I, I make a phone call to my little brothers, and I'm screaming, and I leave a message of just me screaming, and I get, but it, he, he throw, I'm blocking the door, and so he um, pounds the butt of the gun into my chest and says, don't make me do this. And I was like, oh. I'm moving. <laughs> <laughs> calm down. Everything's fine. Oh. So I just moved into calm down mode. I know how to calm him down. It's been my job for five years to calm this, this human down. So I move into calm down mode, and he rushes out of the, the house, and he um, jumps in his truck, and he takes off, and he calls me from a strange phone number within about 20 minutes, and he's like, I have ditched my phone, I'm never coming home, but I want you to hear the shot that takes my life. Oh my God. I want you to know what you've done to me, right? So I was like, please don't do this, please don't do this, please come home, everything's fine, come home. So it turns out he's just up the street. He's, he has gone nowhere. He's just fucking with me. So he comes home and I was like, the guns better be outside. He comes, he comes all the doors are locked, but he, has, he picks a lock. He gets in, and he, all of a sudden this man who I know has, hates me, who has guns, is in my house. So I was just like, everything's fine, I love you, I love you, I love you, we're all fine, everything's fine, everybody's fine. You know, the whole, the whole of this, my kids have been hidden under my bed in my bedroom. You're in protection mode, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, so I had yelled to my oldest, go get your sisters and blah, blah, you know, like, come and hide. So they're, they're traumatized, right? He, got, he actually, one of the charges was domestic violence in front of children is, is a misdemeanor in Utah. So he's got that on his record for that, for that night. But um, finally, I was like, oh, and he had my phone turned off. Classic domestic violence in the middle of the night so I couldn't call out for help. So, um, so he turned your phone he, off he had called the phone or company, he phone company and had them disconnected. Had them disconnected. Wow. Yeah. So I'm sitting there, th and I was like, so, and he's finally all calmed down. And I say, so people are going to be looking for me soon. I need to make some phone calls. Can you go get that phone you have in your truck? And he walked to his truck and police were out there because I called my little brother screaming and my little brother had called the police. Sure. So they're all hands, 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 hands. And I remember just thinking, oh, thank 
God, because how was I going to, like, what were my next steps going to be? Like, how was I going to make logical, valid choices within the constraints of that situation? I didn't know. <laughs> so the police took him for a psych watch, and he got out in two or three days. He got out the day that I was um, waiting to get my protective order. I was waiting for the phone call. I laid down to take a nap, and all of a sudden I started getting phone calls from him, and I was like, oh, he's a 10-minute walk from where I am. I've got to run. So I had already hid my kids with family members, and they were moving the kids every two days so that he couldn't sort of suss out where they were staying and go for them because my fear was that he'd go get my kids and then come get me. So that would have been the worst. Oh, my gosh. So he, um, so I have this week before between the psych watch and when he got me, actually, and during that week I sort of, like, lived it up in a weird way. It's weird to say, but I didn't have him. I didn't have this weight of him, and I was afraid of him all the time, but I was also able to, like, move through my life and make choices in ways that I could never before when I was with him. And I was worried about my kids, and I was worried about we had dogs together, and I was worried that he'd get me but I was also like 280 pounds lighter. Hmm. But he did get me and I had to go home every day to feed the dogs and he knew that. Um, he knew that I was responsible and I'd take care of my, the things that I loved. And so eight o'clock in the morning I go home, a full day, it's a Saturday before school starts, Saturday before I go back to school and it's a Saturday my kids were coming home. So um, I was going out for a full day of errands and I came home to feed the dogs first and I didn't call the police. I had been calling the police to have them come in with me. But I just wanted to, like, quickly get in and out. And he was there waiting with a gun. And so I walked, I opened the door, and I saw the, the dog gate was weird. Hmm. And I was like, like somebody had moved yeah, in. Yeah, and I was like, I just misremember. And I walk up, but there's two little stairs from my back door to get to the kitchen. And I walk through the kitchen, and I can see in my bedroom, and all my clothes are in a pile. And I was like, Run! And I turned to run, but he was right there. And um, he just beat the living daylights out of me. He pistol whipped me severely. So the first thing that happened is that he, the first thing that I recall, I was standing next to my bed and he pistol whipped me, which I can't even, the, the pain is exquisite. I can't even, it's almost the only, of, of, the whole event, it's almost the only thing that I remember. It hurt so bad. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was awful. And I fell to my knees and I remember thinking, I, sh I should probably pass out now. But if I pass out, I die. Right. And I'm not dying. Because you lose control today. at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, I knew there were... I was so strategic. The whole time I was held hostage for four hours, and I was so strategic. I just kept thinking, if this, then this, not that. If this, then this, Okay. And so I was just like constantly balancing and weighing and making decisions and um, just, I just kept saying, Jenny, you know, you know, what do you know? You know this. Okay. Decision made. Mm -hmm. And so I could have, I felt that when I fell to my knees, I was like, this is not it. He doesn't get to win. Yeah. And he didn't. And he beat me with a meat cleaver and he kicked me and he punched me and he shot me in both legs and pushed me downstairs and he made me sit in dog feces and he sexually assaulted me and this all, all the whole time he'd come over and put a gun next to my head on my head you know and I'd be like this could be it 
play the game move back into it's a, it's fine we're a fine family we're so great i'd move back into that mode or i'd get mad and say this isn't fair and this isn't right and this isn't you or you know whatever i was just reading him the whole time trying to figure out what was going to be the right response that time <laughs> and watching him walk away again and like taking a deep breath and it was like that for three hours and he would get off the phone with the police negotiator and i'd be like you should call him and make you know, if you if you stay off the phone with a police negotiator for very long, they're going to be in here with a SWAT team, and you don't want that. And I was like, please, SWAT, come. I, like, <laughs> I, I knew how to make him not kill me, but I didn't know how to get out of it. Yeah. So. And you wanted it to end. And I needed it to be over. I just yeah. was watching the clock, watching the clock. I just needed it to be over. I mean, obviously, I was, I was bleeding, and I was in serious pain, but I just, I, I couldn't anticipate when it would be over it felt like it was going to last forever Hmm. except that I knew he was losing it I was watching him get you know like more and more and more out of sorts so then police SWAT teams threw in a flashbang grenade oh he'd also turned on the gas in the natural gas in the house so the house was filled with gas I was like breathing natural gas Hmm. and I obviously I felt terrible from that um, but he wanted them to ignite the gas when they shot at him, and it would have blown up the block. So he also has a charge for public endangerment for pulling that shenanigan, because <laughs> they knew what he was doing. Yeah, because the flashbang doesn't go off right if there's gas present. Okay. So then they came in. They came in with guns, but they came in knowing not to shoot, and they came running through the house. Jenny, come out! Jenny, come out! And all I could think is, I can't come out. Like, what do you want from me, SWAT team? (laughs) And they were yelling, Jenny, come out, Jenny, come out. And I was down. I knew I had read someplace in my research that if they got me within three minutes, I would live. But I was likely to not live if it took longer than three minutes for them to find me. So I'm just counting to 60. I'm just on my knees counting to 60. And um, I heard Jenny come out, and I heard him. I was... Like based, I was kitty corner from the door of the room I was in. He had me in the basement, and I looked up this way, and he shot. He fired into my. I want to say he hit my left elbow first, and then he hit me in the head. That a bullet hit me in the head, and I remember thinking, he's hit me with a pole. Because the because bullets explode. They explode out. Mm-hmm. So I felt like rods of pain all over my head and um and my my i I was hallucinating because i'd been breathing natural gas and i said don't hold my left arm it hurts too bad it's been broken um i don't know who i was talking to but i remember saying that distinctly so the um so I ran. I ran. I, what more can he do to me? And I ran. I ran to the stairs. I ran up the stairs. He booby-strapped the stairs. I got to the top of the stairs, and there was a SWAT team guy, and he's like, she just screamed, it's Jenny! Because <laughs> they thought it was him. And the so they, he goes, do you want a gurney? And I said, run, that son of a bitch is behind me! <laughs> So I ran myself to the SWAT vehicle, because when SWAT comes in, they clear the street of every piece of everything, including ambulances. 
So they ran me to the SWAT vehicle and got me in SWAT and started cutting off my bloody clothes and my, you know, dog feces clothes. And, um, but then I was out. That was it. But I, I, the SWAT team calls me their hero because I ran with that head wound. I don't, know how. I don't know how you did that. I don't know how. I was not going to die on that hill. I was not going to die that day. It was I it was the only I believe that choices are fully constrained that there's sets of circumstances and everything around. But I made that choice and I made it happen. You were going to live. Oh. I remember. I remember that day. Yeah. Too, right? I think our whole community does. Um and, you know, I was, of course, hearing third hand what the story was. But I remember coming home. I was coming home. Like you said, it was like a couple days before school was starting. Yeah. And I came home from Costco with my husband. And a friend of ours who lives down the block mm-hmm. from me said, oh, my gosh, did you hear what, what happened? Mm-hmm. And it's on the news. And mm-hmm. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was on the news while mm-hmm. it was happening, mm-hmm. right? This mm-hmm. SWAT team was at yeah. your house. And... And um, so I, again, heard third hand what was happening over the course of the next week. And knowing what you went through, mm-hmm. now that you just told me all mm-hmm. of that, and knowing what your injuries were, and I knew what your injuries mm-hmm. were, I remember seeing you about two weeks after that mm-hmm. at the school picnic mm-hmm. and thinking, this has got to be the most courageous woman I've ever known in my life. That's the weirdest thing is I'm not. <laughs> I'm just regular. I just, the only reason I went to that picnic is I was trying to make my kids' lives regular. And I was miserable at that picnic. <laughs> I mean, I like my friends and I enjoy, but, you know, trying to stand and sit on oh. the gun wounds on my legs and um, and being, looking so, you know, the, one of the hard parts was sort of reinventing a look with having lost one eye. But I looked so, but my kids really wanted to go and they needed something normal in their lives. Yeah. So I took them to that stupid picnic. (laughs) 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 And I remember you looked uncomfortable and I think everybody was uncomfortable too because, I mean, I wanted to come up and give you a hug, but I didn't know what to say to you at that point. Yeah, no, what do you say? Somebody like fully traumatized, completely injured, just trying to be normal. What do you say? It's really hard to figure out. So I didn't, I had no judgment of anybody. I mean, I, I try not to judge people anyway, but I had no judgment of anybody, especially in those days, because it was just like, we're all just trying to get through. We're all just doing our best. So how did you get through it? Uh, it's been I, four years, right? Yeah, four years, a couple weeks ago. I've, I got through it with a little help from my friends. Yeah, with a lot uh, of help from your friends yeah, too. Yeah, I I, my best friend took a, a semester leave from her job, worked out teaching her classes and whatnot so it wouldn't impact them financially, but so that she could drive me to doctor's appointments. I was in doctor's appointments day in and day out for six months and then just day in for another six months. And I, my sister let me live with her and my parents came up all the time. and. I have a really good support system. We got meals for ever. There was a point where my mom goes, can I just cook a meal for my own daughter? <laughs> <laughs> I 
There's food coming all the time. Huh? Yeah, there's food coming. It's like, no, and she's like, no, I appreciate, you know, of course we obviously appreciated it. She just had, she's a little control freak, but also she just wanted to make me my favorite dinner, and she's very pragmatic, so what are you going to do with two dinners? And I was like, well, eat them both. Uh, but it was, so it was like, that was the external part, which I couldn't have done the internal part if I didn't have the external part. I was in therapy three days a week. I did EMDR, which is a PTSD style therapy with buzzers holding your hands and it sort of rewires your brain. PTSD problematically wires your brain and EMDR sort of helps it to wire back okay. in a more healthy pattern. Um, and then I did the work. Like I could have gone to therapy for days, ages, years, and it wouldn't have done any good, but I did not want to feel bad anymore. Yeah. I had to let go of my hatred of my ex-husband. I had to let go of my fear of being killed by him. I had to, you know, let go. I had to let go of a lot of stuff. I had to work through and process. Let go is the wrong term. I had to work through and process all those things. Um, and I am not, I have, part of my personality is to not be a victim. And so being a victim is very uncomfortable for me. Um, or it's not that it's uncomfortable, that's not right, because I don't want to demean other people's relationship with having been victims. It feels like I'm not in my own skin. So it feels off. Okay. So I let go of that part of the narrative real fast. I have a, I have a friend who I've met through my research uh, who I've become pretty good friends with, and she has also a devastating story. Like, also, just like, there's awful things happened to her in her marriage. And she said, why are you so, why are you so far ahead of me in your recovery why are you so much better than me and I said I just don't know it's just like all of these part of it is that I've let go of victim and you still need it you still need to process through that it's still a part of what you need as a as a coping strategy okay. but also it's just people are different and different personalities and different childhoods and different therapists my therapist is outrageously good and everybody grieves differently right yeah yeah so it's just it's just it's going to take a different amount of time for different people. How did you help your kids through this? I mean, that's an. I mean, they not only lived through mm-hmm. all of the abuse that happened before yeah. the incident, but they lived through your recovery. Yeah, they had their own recovery, mm-hmm. and then they had to live with their father. Mm-hmm. How do you get through that? They had they have to live with the idea that half of their DNA tried to kill the other half of their DNA. It's yeah. just like mind boggling. I don't know how my kids are amazing. They are amazing. I my know them kids all. <laughs> are they're like good. <laughs> I adore all of them. I truly, truly do. I spent time personally with all yeah. three of them and yeah. they're all little quirky but yeah. fun and they're funny yeah and yeah they haven't let it get them down I mean they, they have to deal with it they have to process it they think things come up in random times and they're like oh yeah 
I, I'm half Filipino. I never think about that anymore. I want to think about that now in this mm -hmm. context to do whatever kind of identity work. So it, it does come up for them. They're all in therapy, except for the little one. The little one just sort of bounced back because she, she was, was only two. Yeah. And my current partner is so great, and they're so clearly bonded. She's lived with him for longer than she lived with her dad. Okay. So it's just, it just seemed, it, it looks easy for her. Stuff will come up like it always does. But my oldest daughter is like stalwart, my, my right-hand man, my, you know, so stuff comes up for her, and it's like, then she's surprised because she should be fine. Mm -hmm. She's kind of like me that way. I should be fine. Why? I can't believe this is bothering me right now. <laughs> My poor middle daughter has been in the psychiatric hospital, and mm -hmm. you know she has a really good therapist now, and it's been, it's been rough. She's been suicidal. She's had lots of issues with fearing men. Mm -hmm. um, but she's doing really well now. They got the right mix of meds and the right therapeutic regime, and she's she's doing really well. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I don't know. They're they're. I I had to be a lot for there for them when I didn't have the energy to be, so that was hard. And I I, I asked them the other day. I was like, so did you? When you think about that year we lived, we we rented a house for a year because I couldn't move back into my house for immediately. Um, I said, when we lived in that rental house, how do you think of me? And, you know, in my mind, I was so together, and I was taking care of my kids. And they were like, oh, yeah, you were depressed. You were, like, really depressed. Mm. Like, how could you tell? I was trying to fake it. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you fake it bad, huh? <laughs> Not a good actress, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> but still, I think that what they saw was a person who was traumatized and in pain getting it done. Yeah. And that that has, that has helped them figure out how to do that in their own lives. So part of your, I, I want to say that part of your, your recovery has been writing this book. So you've, you've written a book uh -huh. on domestic violence, correct? Right. I have two. My first book was on domestic violence as well. When was that published? In 2015. Okay. So that was... Before. Before. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what what do you hope what what's your plan or what's your hope for mm -hmm. these this this research that you've done? What do you hope mm -hmm. that it does for other people who might mm -hmm. be experiencing? Yeah, the the there's two things. So I've written a book, an academic book, but I'm also working on a more popular book which would uh, for popular audiences which was speak to the needs of victims better than the academic ease kind of high and pollutant what I do for work. But the second book that I'm, wor that I'm working on, um, well, the first book, what I hope it does is reduce victim blaming amongst police officers. What do you mean? So police officers don't really understand what it feels like to be a victim of domestic violence. And they see um, emotional violence as just a fight, just a fight like you might have with your husband. An argument, right? Just a, just a little argument. Okay. They can't see that the reason that the victim in that situation called the police is because he or she was fearing for their lives. 
because the law doesn't really allow them to see that. It's not illegal to yell at your husband or your wife. It's only illegal to punch them. So if they get there and there's no physical altercation, the police are like, what are we here for? And they'll help calm the situation down, and they're very excellent at sort of like de-escalation. But they don't understand, the way they talk about victims is as though either they made it up, or they were were over-exaggerating, or that it's not really a big deal, or um, one of them literally said, you should just Google it. That's what someone told you? Yeah, as in, it's not, this is such a minor deal, you should be able to deal with it on yourself, by yourself. And what I would hope that police officers would learn from my book is that these are, the way that domestic violence works is through domination of one party over the other, and that that domination means that when you get yelled at by the dominating party, that it's terrifying. Or it's not just a fight, it's domination. Yeah. So, and I would hope that, you know, the more I talk to people in general, lots of people don't understand that aspect of domination, that in domestic violence, it's not just fights, it's domination, it's being totally held down by the other, by the abusive partner. Um, So it's not that she's choosing to stay, why doesn't she just leave, is the common question. Well, she's not leaving for a lot of reasons, lots of which I've given here today, Um, but also because perhaps of this system of domination makes leaving seem literally impossible. Mm -hmm. Like, it makes it so that you can't see outside your worldview. It's like asking you to see, to look out the window and and say, oh, that, that sky looks green to me today, right? It totally changes your worldview. Okay. Um, and just to start to support victims instead of blame them. If she stays, it must be because she likes it. It must be because she's got into BDSM, which I've heard. It must be because she likes being dominated in some fashion. It must be because she likes her husband. She may actually, or he may actually like their partner. That's the real rub in a domestic violence situation, Um, is they may still be in love. And then there's this other really foul component to the relationship right so that's and then when vic- when victims themselves read it I hope they see I'm not alone that's yeah. what I hope they see you've talked I, I've heard you talk before about your SWAT team mm-hmm. my SWAT team your SWAT team <laughs> you love your SWAT I team I love my SWAT team <laughs> what do you think do you think they've learned anything from their experience with you yeah I think that I think that all the police that I've worked with, I'm sort of an ideal victim because I called the police when I should and I called for the proper kind of event and I am um, well educated and I am in the right neighborhood and you know there's lots of things that make working with me easy. Um, What I hope they've learned is that domestic violence is complicated and it happens places you don't expect to see it happening, like in a professor at the university's house. Right. And that it happens in quiet ways that you don't that you don't have to call the police for, but that doesn't mean that when you call the police that there's not uh, it hasn't been a problem for a long time. So one police officer, when I called the police one time, said to another officer, "But we've never answered a call at this house before." And I said, it's, "It may be the first one, but get used to it." <laughs> <laughs> there's always a first one, right? 
but they, you know, they just, initially they weren't really taking me seriously, and then they started to see that it was serious, and I was right. I knew him. I knew it was going to be dangerous in right. the end. They were saying stuff like, you know, if, why would it get, why is she so afraid if this is the first time she's called us? Oh, because I know him. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like to think that all of the officers I've worked with have learned that sort of lesson, which is that to trust and believe victims of domestic violence. We aren't lying. We aren't making stuff up. Yeah. We're terrified for our lives. <laughs> kind of 24 hours a day. Yeah. You know, just listening to you talk about how you said, okay, I know how to deal with this. Okay, yeah. I know how to deal with this. Right. And so you'd you'd figure out a way to calm him down mm-hmm. or to redirect mm-hmm. him or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, <laughs> I think we all, you know, have that in, in our relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, right. he come, even my husband will, right. you know, might come home grumpy or, you know, I'm like, okay, I know how to deal with yeah, this. I know right? how to, like, right. make everything smooth. Or when our toddlers come home yeah. grumpy. Yeah, <laughs> when they come home grumpy. I know how to deal with this. <laughs> but I'm never fearful. Right. I'm never afraid. You're never, never worried about retaliation. Right. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine what it's like to, to mm-hmm. live with that, you know, that, mm-hmm. that level of fear, like, constantly. And it's not just on occasion. It's daily. And it's... It, it's not just that you are helping t- the person that you love to feel better. It's that you are managing their emotions such that you can make dinner. Mm-hmm. It's way it's way closer to when you, when you have a tantruming two year old. Yeah. And you're like, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Feed them Cheerios. Feed them Cheerios. <laughs> Cheerios and M Ms while you make dinner. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, I learned to have a meal ready. I, I always had rice. He loved rice more than any food in the world. I always had hot rice on the stove. I made sure that there was always the comfort things so that he would be happy. So that you wouldn't have to deal yeah. with it. Wow. He was so mean. There was no, like, I'm like, I wish somebody would do the dishes tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, you would never say oh, that. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no, no. <laughs> No, and I've had to, in my healthy relationship, I've had to learn that it's okay to say, hey, babe, can you do the dishes? I I did them last night, or I'm too tired, or, yeah. you know, and, and have the person be like, oh, yeah, sure, of course. Yeah. I'm going to do them, like, happy. <laughs> it took me, it took me uh, at least a year to, to realize I didn't have to walk on eggshells. And he wasn't doing anything to make me walk on eggshells, and he'd say, you're, I feel like you're walking on eggshells. Can you, like, tell me what's going on with you? And I'd be like, well... I didn't realize I was doing it, but I've been trained by previous relationships to behave this way so that I don't get smacked. Let me ask you this. Did you, now now that you've had time to reflect on this Mm -hmm. and you've had time to reflect on your life, were there any other relationships in your life that were Mm -hmm. similar or that would make you feel like you know, I mean, I've heard you say, I'm an educated woman, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm smart. I should have seen this. Mm-hmm. 
is there anything else in your life that maybe wasn't mm-hmm. exactly the same, mm-hmm. but that you look mm-hmm. back and go, oh, I yeah. seem to have been attracted to something like this before. In the past. Yeah, yeah the, my first serious boyfriend when I was in my 20s was really controlling, but not only in some ways, not like in every way, the yeah. way that my ex-husband was. But I could see, I can see in that early relationship that what I was looking for was um, somebody who cared about me and paid attention to me. And control feels like being paid attention to. Mm-hmm. So you don't know that you're being controlled. You feel like they, they just actually care how you are and where, where you were that day. And, and then okay. all of a sudden, you realize that what they're trying to do is manage you, make sure they know where you are, and all of that. Okay. So that's one of the weird things about control. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely had not all of my early relationships, but I, I had been married once before my ex-husband. That husband died in a fire some years before I met him. Um, and he was just like, genial and funny and all you know he he was broken human too i'm kind of attracted to broken humans until now i i i broke that habit <laughs> but i it's not like I, it's not that i'd like to fix her up or it's that i liked somebody with a complicated narrative yeah <laughs> it's like a narrative <laughs> fetish <laughs> oh i know that <laughs> and then it comes with all this baggage you're yeah. like wait what the oh. Well, I gotta say, you look happy. I am happy. Yeah, I often say, um, I mean, this is one of the ways I've let go of my victim self, is I often say, you can only be the place where you are having traveled the path you traveled. My path took me through losing one eye. But I love where I am so much right now, it's all worth it. I don't actually even care. Yeah, though my life right now is amazing. I'm so glad. Mm-hmm. Me too. I think you're awesome. Thank you. And I think you are one of the most courageous people. <laughs> Just regular. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah.